Next Chapter Podcasts. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well... That's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hi, folks. I'm Jeff Udick, the founder and co-host of the Shifting Schools podcast. If you are a fan of this show and a fan of podcasts, consider checking out Shifting Schools. We drop a new episode every Monday. Also, be sure to check out over 60 free guides and resources we have for educators on our website at shiftingschools.com. I'm Michael Goodfriend, executive producer of the Play On podcast series at Next Chapter Podcasts. You know, the actors who give voice to the characters of the Play On podcast have come to Next Chapter Studios through a whole array of backgrounds, roads, paths, walks of life, whatever you want to call it. But Colleen Worthman may be the first actor we've had who is just as much a writer as an actor. I thought it would be fun to talk with her about Henry V and get her unique perspective on how this story is told. She's the voice of Exeter, Orléans, and others throughout the entire series. And she's here with me now, Colleen Worthman. Thank you so much for being with us as part of the Play On Podcast bonus content series for Henry V. <laughs> Thank you, Michael. The pleasure is mine. Colleen, That's a mouthful right there. <laughs> what, that the pleasure is yours? The or podcast, the, the, the play on the, <laughs> the whole title. Yeah, how many how many times can you get the word podcast into one sentence? That's the challenge. <laughs> <laughs> okay. You have written for The Daily Show with Trevor Noah, The yes. Nightly Show with Larry Wilmore. You yes. have you wrote the Academy Awards? Uh, uh, I worked on the writing team of the Oscars two times. Yeah. So you wrote the Academy Awards. Basically. Yeah. You just, okay. Uh, And, and you've done comedy central roasts. You've done the white house correspondent. I like, as I choke on this saying the words white house correspondence dinner, because really there's nothing. I mean, in the world of comedy, it seems to me that's like this sort of like, that's the Oscars. If you get to write for the white house correspondence dinner. It's pretty cool, but it's actually a really rough room because it's so cavernous and the people are not there to laugh. (laughs) (laughs) Right. I guess it's the hardest audience you could possibly get. Right. People who really take themselves seriously. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) At least at the Um, actors at the Oscars. Right. I mean, 
people are willing to laugh at themselves. It seems a lot more readily. Much more than, so, yeah. Uh, except now you right. get hit. You know, now you really you're taking your life in your hands if you're if you're writing comedy for the Oscars. I mean, a lot of people are taking their life into their hands if they're writing comedy or performing comedy. <laughs> Regardless, right? Okay, references to cultural, you know, things that are happening in the now of now when it comes to comedy writing. Mm-hmm. How similar is writing comedy for stars to the series Hacks? Go. Well, it depends on the star. It depends on the star's personality and whether they're funny or not. I mean, I've I've written for people who are not necessarily comics and I've written for people who are incredibly seasoned, legendary comics. Um, So it it honestly depends on, on, on their voice. I try to, you know, be in their character when I write for them and write to their voice and what makes them unique and sort of what makes them pop. So in in Hacks, Ava, played by Hannah Einbinder, mm-hmm. uh, has to get to know Deborah Vance, the character Deborah Vance, played by Gene Smart, the legendary Gene Smart. Yes. Right. So so there there is that is that realistic in your mind that that like that that she could not become the writer for that character without getting to know her the way she does. Some comics have very much an entourage kind of lifestyle where, you know, they're super successful, super famous, and they have this kind of like team who's always with them, whether at home or traveling or whatever. My understanding is that Joan Rivers, upon whom the character of Deborah Vance is based, very much did have that kind of orbit. Um and it wouldn't surprise me that a, a an iconic Vegas comic like that would have a sort of entourage setup. Uh, you know, others, other comics work a lot over email. Others just have very casual sort of get togethers, you know, at their apartments or their homes or whatever. Who's, so it really it really depends. I feel like I'm giving you these kind of unsatisfyingly nuanced. Yeah, <laughs> there's. There's nothing in here that we can go to the gossip magazines with. You no. no juice. <laughs> no, no, I'm sorry. If you want to make some extra bank, I'll I'll try to think of some hot gas for you. <laughs> Come on. This is this is the stuff hey. that makes podcasts addictive. Who <laughs> <laughs> all right, here's a softball. Who what who is the easiest comic you've written for? Like I mean that like the easiest relationship, most down to earth. Let's put it that way. Most down to earth. Gosh, I thought this was an easy question. I mean, I feel like I haven't written for anybody who was really that. Maybe one who was difficult sometimes, but I've written for a lot of pretty seasoned comics who are very at home in there and very specific about their own voices. I mean, writing for Steve Martin was a dream. He was totally supportive, totally encouraging, totally fun, very concise with his notes, very precise about what is his voice and what wasn't. And and when I first started writing for him, I was a fairly novice joke writer. And so I was kind of overwhelmed by the opportunity 
but I just worked really hard and tried to be in his voice and his way of being and his perspective. And overall, I think he was pretty happy with my material. He was completely unpretentious. And I learned a lot. You know, when you try to fight for the best, you can't help but get better, you know? Yeah. What was the Steve Martin event or series or was it what was it a series or or uh... no uh the first thing i ever wrote for him was uh, a bunch of monologue jokes because he was about to host saturday night live this was like february or march of 2009 and i actually met him through his wife who's a very old friend of mine And he kind of took a shine to me and invited me to write for him because I was writing already comedic stuff. I think he just wanted to give me a shot. But, uh, you know, he he wound up actually being really happy with me. And uh, I I mean, writing (laughs) writing for him was such a trip. Because he emailed me out of the blue and was like, hey, I'm hosting SNL in a few months. You want to write some jokes for me? I was like, yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> I'm okay. <laughs> so I worked really, really hard on them. And his he had two other writers who were also, you know, doing jokes for him. And they were very welcoming and very friendly, which I really appreciated because I was kind of nervous coming in through this other weird channel and uh, being relatively far less experienced. And they were incredibly gracious. And Steve liked my stuff. And about a third of the monologue that he did wound up being jokes that I wrote. And I got to go to Studio H. My husband and I sat in the balcony and we got to watch him do the monologue at the taping. And I had like a complete out of body experience. I was like, oh, my God. I had thoughts and I typed them in my computer and I sent them to him and then he put them in his mind and they're coming out. My words are coming out of his mouth and the people are laughing. You know, my oh, mind is blown. It's got to be the greatest honor. <laughs> it was completely I mean, a that, that's a, that, what could possibly top that other than the play on podcast yeah. series, Henry V. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I mean, he did invite me to write for the Oscars when he co-hosted with Alec Baldwin in oh. uh, in like 2010, I think it was. So that was like a year and a half later, maybe. But by then and, you were so big, you turned him down. No, not at all. <laughs> by then I was like, well, I know he's hosting the Oscars. I'm sure he'll ask me if he wants me to write for him. And, and he did. He did. Awesome. So I I got to do that. And it was also incredibly fun. Does he still live in the same uh, uh, house uh, in Beverly Hills where uh, Judd Apatow, as legend has it, uh, went to ask for his autograph and was told that he never signs autographs at his house? I don't think he signs autographs ever in general. I think he's just opposed to it. Um, But I don't. I don't know. I know where he lives in Beverly Hills, but I don't know if it's the same. The House of Legend. <laughs> yeah, because I don't know what year Judd yeah. Apatow did that. Oh, oh gosh. Apparently, I guess it must have been 40 years ago now at this point. But uh, yeah, mm. <laughs> could be, well, could not be. Yeah. Well, uh, I'll, I'll and, leave that to the Internet sleuths. Yeah. So, OK. Pivoting from all of this incredible experience to how, how it all 
how you got into that world, the 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 writing for for these legendary comedians and, mm-hmm. and being a writer in your own right. Did you set out to be a writer? Did you set out to be no. an actor? What what I, came first? I mean, when I was in high school, I fell in love with acting. I went to NYU to teach school of the arts. I was a drama major. I studied at Circle in the Square. After I got out of there, I observed at the actor's studio. And then I t- I studied with the legendary acting teacher, Wynn Handman, when I was in my early 20s. I When I was in college, I thought I was going to be a Shakespearean actor, like go around the country to regional theaters and do Shakespeare plays. But then I started to fall in love. I did. I fell in love with experimental theater. And that's all I wanted to do when I got out. So I, I actually was one of the founding members of this experimental theater company called Elevator Repair Service, which is maybe best known for this production called Gats. It's a, a like an eight hour long adaptation of The Great Gatsby, which is actually pretty extraordinary. Um, so I was an actor in that company for a long time. I was also a costume designer there because nobody else was doing costumes. And I was like, I'll do it. I didn't really know what I was doing. I kind of learned as I went along and then I wound up designing for other people. But um, yeah, after that stuff, I I started performing solo work from like my mid twenties to my early thirties because I wasn't working enough as an actor aside from like experimental theater stuff. I wasn't booking and I just wanted to perform. I wanted to work and and be creatively challenged so i wrote for myself and i did three solo shows and that was super fun um also exhausting like i hate producing my own work (laughs) (laughs) but i did it for like seven years and then i was like i miss acting with other people and i miss like regular theater so then i started doing more like new plays that's actually what i spent the most time in my career doing is like you know plays from scratch and new plays written by playwrights. And I have done basically almost no Shakespeare in my professional career. Um, when wow. I was in college, I played Ratcliffe in Richard III and I was Juliet and Romeo and Juliet in a student production that a friend of mine directed, which was really fun. Um, I, when I was like in my early twenties, I played Portia in this experimental-ish adaptation by Todd Alcott of the Merchant of Venice called A Pound of Flesh. And uh, that was really fun. But like, since then, I basically, like, people never see me as a Shakespearean actor. They see me as this sort of downtown person who, uh, or, or, or like a new play person. There's kind of this weird, I think, disparate thing in New York where like you're either like a regular actor or you're like one of these kind of like modern new people actors who does downtown and experimental stuff I think did you do stand-up ever I've never done stand-up I have great respect for the art of it and also it's just like such a brutal life yeah like I I, I love stand-up. I have lots of friends who are stand-ups. But every time I think about becoming a stand-up, I'm going to be like, oh, my God, it's going to take years to get good. I feel like I have an advantage, like if I actually change my mind and start doing it because I'm very comfortable performing and I'm, you know, I, I find it easy to do crowd work. Well, what I, I, you know, it's, it's really interesting because the one, the one woman shows that you've done, the one person shows, and, mm-hmm. and, uh, I, I I was a bartender at a comedy club and oh which one 
it was called M Bar in Los Angeles. It was oh, okay. way back in the day. I'm not going to tell you when it was, but before <laughs> it was before <laughs> before uh, Louis C.K. was a household name. Before he was a household name for what he's a household name for now. Right. <laughs> he, was, he was so his act was so silly and so funny when he was like 30. Yeah. Like around the time he wrote like Pootie Tang. Uh-huh. I remember him performing at Luna Lounge in New York and his act was so surreal. It made me cry laughing. Well, and, and what was so interesting about the likes of Louis C.K., Patton Oswald, Laura, Laura mm-hmm. Keitlinger, the, the, you know, these these incredible uh, comedians. Mm. When you when you sit down and and you're at, a, a, you know, hearing them do their their thing, it sounds like it's they're it's just coming out spontaneously they're having these, oh, these yeah. thoughts these jokes it's are so coming, they're, that they're so brilliant that they can think of these these jokes in the moment but the, but being a bartender and hearing their jokes multitasking as i was getting people drinks and making their drinks and opening you know what bottles of wine and whatnot i began to realize because the same comics would come up time after time after time sure. trying yeah. out their material. Uh, and, and I realized, Oh my God, these are not spontaneous things. The revelation for me was these are one person shows, you yeah. know, they, that so, so you writing a one person show actually makes total sense in that, that it would lead to comedy because it's, it, I think it's kind of the same craft. Uh, I mean, a one person show has much more of a narrative, I guess, a beginning, middle and end. And you don't expect to be interrupted by the audience. But if you know your material really well and you have a thousand jokes that you've written that you can pull out at any moment to fit a narrative or a theme mm. that you've crafted, then it 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 has that. It, it feels spontaneous, but it really is fitting into a beginning, middle and end. I had yeah I mean mo- my solo shows were really like two of them were like multi-character like ding 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 like a parallel circuitry uh-huh. that sort of created a whole environment and then one was more of like a straight up narrative with an arc but yeah I mean there were a lot of jokes in them and yeah. I I mean I've always thought that my gift my my main strength or one of my main strengths, hopefully, as a joke writer is that I have this acting background, which makes me able to go inside people's ways of being inside their characters and see things through their eyes and speak in their voices. It see, is a kind of channeling for sure. Well, and that's that it's so interesting that that so many comedians are asked to act Yes. Right? And and mm-hmm. and you get these, you know, Judd Apatow, right? Was uh, he he went to he wanted to be an actor, but you know, he was the funny guy and he was told he couldn't act and and so he he went completely into writing. It's it's not as often or as common that you get actors, you know, comedians who have a solid background in acting, which I think makes makes much more sense. You know, that we would then have yeah. in films and television. And, you know, Yeah, it's funny. And it's interesting to me because a lot of comics, people who are pure stand up comics who become actors are equally adept at comedy and drama. Like mm-hmm. there are a lot of drama actors who can't be funny. 
Yeah. But if you're a comic actor, you are already technically more skilled than a drama actor. I know these are fighting words. Come at me, bro. <laughs> it's totally <laughs> true. I mean, I, I, I think it, it's a lot harder to be funny. Yeah. Well, it's it requires a certain sort of scientific or technical obsession uh-huh. that is about mechanics, timing, dynamics, uh, stuff like volume, um, rhythm that a lot of people who are swamped with emotion and drama don't think about. Yeah. There's so much more technicality in comedy and you have to have that spark of life, that spontaneity. So there's a lot more like Olay factor, I think. So you wanted to be a Shakespearean actor and, uh, you got your big break when you were cast in the play on podcast series, Henry V. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> How Playing did, men, I, like I always do. So not your first time playing male roles. This ain't my first male rodeo. <laughs> no, my wife said to me yesterday, you know, everybody makes such a big to do about, uh, you know, actors who can have played the whole canon, Shakespeare's whole canon. She's like, it's always men because the, the the whole, like all 37 plays, they've been in all 37 plays, you know? Uh, mm-hmm. uh, and she said there really needs to be a special award for the first woman who has been in all 37 of Shakespeare's oh, plays. Oh, yeah, 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 mm-hmm. <laughs> Totally. Yeah, I wonder who that would be. Yeah. Well, maybe it'll be you. <laughs> maybe. We'll see how this goes. <laughs> uh, <laughs> So, okay, how, uh, how did you how did you end up in this podcast series? You know, Lloyd Saw, the translator. I know Lloyd Saw. I know him through this theater that he used to work for called The Lark, which um, was sort of like a new play development thing. It wasn't like a theater company per se. They didn't really like produce productions, but they did a, tons and tons of like readings and workshops and provided opportunities for um playwrights to uh you know hear new their new material and get feedback on it uh with really good actors and um in the way that they want because a lot of i think a lot of um new playwright development is like kind of a nightmare like you get a lot of a lot of unwelcome sort of prescriptive stuff like you need to do this with your play you need to do that And at the Lark, the playwrights were in charge of like, what do you want to hear? What are the questions you have? Which I think was very welcome and necessary for their processes. So anyway, uh, I Lloyd used to get these, uh, used to sort of cast these Monday night workshops that they would do like every other Monday night. And I would frequently do those. As I've mentioned before, I I love working on new plays. or maybe I just mentioned that I work on a lot of new plays. I, I love working on new plays. And he would always ask me to come and do Monday nights. And I would. And that's how I got to know him. And eventually I would see readings of his plays. And he's an incredibly gifted playwright. His work is wonderful, completely spellbinding. And um, so I was excited to find out that he had done this adaptation. And I said, hells, yeah, I'll do it. And, and are- I know I know a lot of the other actors sort of just from New York. I did a play with um, Steve Boyer, who played Pistol, 
years ago, this awesome play by Nick Jones called Trevor. It's like one of my favorite plays I've ever done. Uh, Bobby Moreno, Je- uh, Jeff Beal, I did a show with like five years ago, six years ago. Um, God, who else? So the, all the all the people in this ensemble have yeah. worked together at some point, it seems yeah, like. Yeah, one Everybody- way or another, either a reading or productions or whatever. So you go into the studio, there's there's nobody there that you didn't know. There were a handful of people I had not ever worked with or met. Um, among the main actors, I would say I knew about half of them. Uh-huh. Yeah. And what was your take on it? Had you worked on this uh, translation that Lloyd had done prior to going into this podcast series, or was this no, your first never. look at it? Yeah, it was my first look. And what was, how did, what did you think of Exeter, the character when you, when you picked it up and started, you know, peeling away the layers of, of this person? Well, what? you know, the sort of military advisor is uh, a character that's in a lot of Shakespeare plays, obviously. I my take my take on Exeter was that he's kind of like Mike from Breaking Bad. Uh-huh. <laughs> he's like the helper who uh just tells it like it is uh-huh. and is a grizzled veteran who might even be pretty over it. And then uh, Orleans, I played as uh or Orleans, as some people like to say, I played as uh, a little more sassy. Mm-hmm. A little bit more of a somebody who's like playing the dozens on a stoop, like right. yo mama jokes kind of a thing. That was actually one of my favorite scenes to um to work on. <laughs> <Because> <laughs> yes. There's like all that stuff like where the Dauphin is going off about his horse, how much he loves the horse. And then, you know, there's all these like dirty jokes and kind of double entendres and lots of whooping and laughing. That was a lot of fun. I, I didn't do a, uh, give Exeter short shrift. I just uh, got on a an Orleans jag there. That's yeah, uh, and they really are. I mean, it's like who can who can take the piss out of them as the, as the Brits say the, yeah, yeah. the most without you know be crossing the line, right? Because at right. a certain point, the Dauphin could actually have you killed. Right. Yeah. So you you want to do zingers that won't get you beheaded. Have there been adaptations of Shakespeare that you've seen that you're like, that's, that's it. That's money. That is, they nailed it. Like or that just kind of, Oh, that oh, you felt were uh, really successful. Um, okay. When I was in college or maybe just out, I saw this production of Brooklyn Academy of music. It was called Ninagawa Macbeth. And it was by this Japanese like classical director. I can't even remember his name, but it was, um, it was set in like samurai era and it was just stunningly beautiful. And then like when the Porter came out, he was wearing like those little wooden um, sandals with the two kind of sticks. I can't remember what they're called for the life of me right now, but it was like this stock character in like Japanese culture that they, that they kind of like had transformed into like the character of the Porter. It was so perfect. I was like, wow, amazing. Um, I also really love this film adaptation directed by, I think, directed and written by David Michaud. No, directed by him, written 
and adapted by Joel Edgerton, I think, called The King. And Timothy Chalamet plays Prince Hal and Edgerton plays Falstaff. And it's it's very smartly done. It's uh, it looks fabulous. All the actors are great. And it's a prosy adaptation, which still rings very true to my mind, to the rhythms and the vibes of the original text. Je vous remercie de me recevoir, Votre Majesté. Please, please speak English. I enjoy to speak English. It is simple and ugly. Those two are the ones that come to me off the top of my head. Did this feel, when you started digging into it, did it feel like it, like it's relevant? You know what I mean? Like relevant I mean, to what? To 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 us here and now, Henry V, right? It, it's this history play. Uh, you know, it 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 feels when you just you're like, okay, it's a play about a a king from hundreds of years ago. What? It, what is the point of doing it now? When you started to dig into it, did you start to go, oh my God, there are points, there are things in here that totally speak to our time? Well, you know, obviously the first thing I thought of was Russia's invasion of Ukraine and saying right. like, oh, we own this land, you know, this land is ours, da, 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 da. We have claim to this land historically. Um. That you know, huge, it, that huge sort of long speech that opens the whole series, right? right. Where, yeah. where, where the old guy is just going on and on and on about uh, back in the day, your father's what's that? That felt to you like like Putin's excuse for invading Ukraine. Absolutely, because Putin is going back and saying, "Back in the time of the Visigoths," mm-hmm. and, yeah, yeah, and when. All it is is about just getting having any excuse to go. He well, he wants us to restore the Soviet Union. Yeah, he wants he, to be Stalin. Shakespeare had to make Henry likable. I wonder if Shakespeare liked Henry, or if Shakespeare is making a point here about like what hmm. are the limits? You know. Okay, here's here's my hot take. Okay. Okay, he wrote all of these kind of ass kissy plays for the monarchy about how great England is. I mean, it's not that different from like a Medici commissioning a painting from a painter during the Renaissance and being like, okay, make this like beautiful picture of Catholicism. And then like, okay, you know? Yeah. I think that Shakespeare was like, all right, we need a heroic king. Here we go. <laughs> and, you know, and still is landing bills. Right. But but he's able to do it landing some punches. Right. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Which, which back in the day was a really uh, risky thing. Right. Because you really were yes. killed if you crossed the line you right. know, or tortured or, or right. you know, had your tongue I cut mean, out. He was skillful and his plays were hella entertaining, popular and critical acclaim. You know, he knew how to pack them full of all kinds of awesome stuff, you know, fights, 
comedy, sex, and, you know, I feel like he bulletproofed his scripts so that he could get in little zingers. Yeah. Which is why they've lasted, you know? Yeah. Yeah. If he was just doing, you know, puff pieces for royalty, then they would have. They would have been flat and boring. Yep. And then, you know, if he had been too heavy handed, they would be in the dustbin of history, just like all the very serious plays about the Vietnam War, which were so meaningful at the time. But, you know, can anyone name a single one now? No. I mean, I can. I know them, but they're not worth doing because they're heavy handed and dumb in their obviousness. So how is this similar? I mean, do you as a as a comedy writer, right? For the White House correspondence. I mean, I fancy myself a Shakespeare of comedy. (laughs) (laughs) Shakespearean actor and comedian. (laughs) Uh, But but it, it is kind of it's the same in comedy, right? I mean, you can't be. Uh, I, 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 that, that, that it, it, do you, I guess it's more a question than a comment that it, it, do you feel like the same holds true in writing comedy here and now for something like the white house correspondence dinner? I'm not sure. I understand your question. Do you like, do you, so uh, uh, we're talking about how Shakespeare had to thread a needle, not be too offensive uh, right. to the royalty, but not too not, not offensive. Too soft either. Right. Do right. You, it's like it's like that song Motown Philly, like not too hard, not too soft. <laughs> <laughs> right. I, I, do you face that challenge writing comedy today? Um. Yes. Again, it depends on what venue. Like if it's a big event like the Oscars, you know, you don't want to ruin someone's night with cruelty. But on the other hand, fuck these people. It's like millionaires giving each other gold statues for being amazing. <laughs> you know, um, so you want to be able to zing people in a way that's funny for them and everyone. And you also want to have some teeth for the people who are like, oh, I resent this, you know? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. So that's a needle to thread for sure. But then, you know, when we're talking about like Shakespeare and how he made stuff last because it was packed with all these complexities and pleasing things, you know, I, I've done a lot of news comedy, which is very disposable. You know, it goes away with the news and I'm often envious of people who get to just write quote unquote, pure fun even though it's quote unquote, not as hard. I think it is actually really hard, especially in our extremely polarized culture right now to make jokes that make everyone laugh. Yeah. Because people are really worked up still, even, you know, two years after the end of the Trump presidency, people are still super uh, conspiracy ish, super stubborn, super angry, super paranoid and threatened on the left and the right. And downtrodden, and you know, on in the left, right, and middle. So I, I remember very you know, challenging during during uh, the Trump presidency. You know, I talked to 
I won't say who, a very, very famous actor, but he was actually upset about Alec Baldwin playing Trump just because he said, we can't laugh. There's nothing that, that, that making a joke of Trump actually undermines the resistance to Trump. You know, I mean, I've heard that argument and I don't necessarily agree. I think that one of the great gifts of American democracy is our collective freedom to shit on the president and all politicians, Um, even though it might not feel particularly edgy. If you look at it from, you know, a 30,000 foot view, it's actually amazing and awesome that we do it and do it as much as we do. Um, I do think that there's a danger in very, very partisan uh, point-making and mocking in that it usually serves as confirmation bias for affluent, well-educated liberals and poor, uneducated conservatives. Mm -hmm. I mean, well, everyone really, but particularly those two uh demographics and all the tv news comedy is geared toward uh confirmation bias for affluent liberal well-educated people mm-hmm. and then most like talk radio the joe rogan's the alex joneses are geared toward like poor uneducated conservatives yeah so i think that's a danger i mean we're getting probably way off topic from like henry the fifth podcast but those, it's all it's all it, relevant it, though it's, because it's kind of all interlinked in a way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I we we talk a lot about how polarized our society is today, mm-hmm. right? And it definitely is. I mean, I was my my stepdad is a uh, Vietnam vet and w- was a hippie in the '60s and lived through all of the 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 sort of the the tumultuousness of that time. Mm-hmm. And I was talking to him yesterday. He said it it's way worse now, you know? So, you know, just hearing that from somebody who had been in, in the fray really uh, back in when, what we say was the most tumultuous time since the civil war, you know, yikes. Uh, Given that though, I mean, England in Shakespeare's time was every bit as tumultuous with the Catholics and, you know, the, the yeah. And the Protestants. Yeah. I mean, let's not forget about like the um, the restoration. Mm -hmm. Not long after this. Right. Right. After Cromwell put the kibosh on theater, then it came back and it was restoration theater. Yeah. So you said that you 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 uh, wish you had the freedom to. um, Oh, gosh, I can't remember how you put it. Your fun comedy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, but you're uh, you're you're show running a comedy variety pilot for Freedom about women's history created and hosted Freeform. by. I'm sorry, Freeform. No, that's okay. It's yeah. um, it's like a subsidiary of ABC Disney. I actually did that like uh, two years ago. Okay, so you're yeah. no longer showrunner on that, or it's over. No, and- I show ran the pilot, and that's done. It was okay. actually a blast to write. It was so so fun. So, so show that was pushy, bitchy, frumpy, hoary. <laughs> <laughs> and it's uh it's a sketch variety uh pilot about women's history and how uh the 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 thesis of the pilot is basically that like we really don't know just so much 
about women's history and we don't know like even a fraction of the incredible amazing stories of of women in history that we do know existed <laughs> so it was a blast i did it with um i co-wrote it with laura bell bundy who is an incredible singer actor performer uh powerhouse in her own right who's maybe most well known for starring as Elle Woods in the Broadway production of Legally Blonde. I think she was nominated mm. for Tony for it, among other things. And did that have that, did, what did that give you this sort of the freedom that you're talking about just to have fun? I mean, did it feel like that or is show running such a major responsibility that the, you can't have, I mean, you did just say that it was great fun, but was it, it, it let's say, if you were to continue, if that pilot had gotten picked up, if it ran, uh-huh. uh, uh, could you see yourself having uh, the kind of freedom that that you're describing, and just in 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 uh, in the process, you know that? Yes, although I think it would feel different. I mean, show running just the the writing of a pilot is purely creative, mm-hmm. and then once you get into production. Show running becomes this whole different ball of wax. You're dealing with budgets. You're dealing with time. You're dealing with, uh, you know, different departments issues. You're handling talent. You're handling the writer's room. So it's very much more a managerial job, but you're still making creative decisions. I think the freedom would be with a lot of baggage attached. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> there would be a lot of sidecars of baggage attached to that freedom, if that yeah. makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. a lot of, I mean, it's a lot of stress, you know, yeah. uh, as well, yeah. managing yeah. all of that. But, you know, that's a good, it's a happy problem to have. Like, <laughs> oh no, I'm so stressed, uh, you know, trying to figure out how to make my show perfect. Right. <laughs> like that's, that's an awesome situation to be in. Can I ask you more about the White House Correspondents' Dinner? Sure, of course. Which, have you done more than one? No, I I only have done one. I did uh, the one where Larry Wilmore uh, was the host, and uh, it was Barack Obama's last year's president. I want to thank the president, uh, the first uh, lady, Caroline, the White House uh, Correspondents' Association um, for hiring me, and Mitch McConnell for not blocking my nomination. Seriously, you got to give Mitch McConnell credit. At this point, he could block LeBron James. That was a great one. It was a great one, right? It was really funny. Harder than, easier than. We we did kind of touch on it for a second, but mm-hmm. but compared to writing for the Oscars, uh, more of a breeze or or less. Um, it was much more concentrated. I would say there was a lot more. It felt like a lot more pressure just because we were also working on the nightly show. And then we were like churning out these jokes for the white house correspondence dinner, kind of whenever we had free time. Uh-huh. Uh, and when I was writing on the Oscars, there was just a lot more time to craft those jokes. Um, so there was definitely the more of a, a time constraint, a, a rush of like, shit, we've got to have like, four batches of jokes this week. And then he's going to run it on the, you know, on the Friday before the weekend. So, you know, it also, but, but 
there was something good about the speed of the correspondence dinner because we already knew who was going to be there. We already knew what Larry wanted to talk about. And we already knew, you know, just topically what we wanted to cover about Barack Obama's presidency. And with, like with the with the Oscars, there's this sort of different situation where, you know, all, you think Tom Cruise is going to be in the audience and then all of a sudden he's not. Or, uh, you know, you think the director of X movie, which is a big deal, is not going to be there. And then he is. And you're like, <clears throat> and you have to do all this stuff. But either way, or, it's like a lot of preparedness. I Does did attend. Sense? Yes, I attended the Oscars. Oh, once. when? Isn't it fun? It was great. I here here's how it happened. My grandmother's co-worker's stepdaughter rode horses with the wife of the man who did the clips for all of the films that were referred to. <laughs> so I got set up on a blind date with this person. I wore a tuxedo that didn't fit and, you know, we sat in the nosebleeds and um, she couldn't have been less interested. And, and, and I was of course riveted, you know, and she said, if you want to go walk around, go ahead. And I, I did. And I, I like snuck down. I well, did snuck, you hit the open bars? Those I open totally bars. totally went in. I, I hit the open bar and then uh, all of a sudden people like, if you act like you, are like you're somebody mm -hmm. um, like uh, I, I went up to to uh, a very famous actress who happened to win the award for best actress. And I actually nice. had a person in common with her. And I said, hey, you know, <laughs> I mentioned this person and she started talking to me and suddenly I was royalty. You know, uh, mm -hmm. people assumed because I was with her in that moment that I was somebody. And so I milled around with all of these legends and, and famous people. Yes. But that's when I realized that those seats that are filled when the camera pans to those people are not filled most of the time because everybody's so stressed out that they're going straight for the bar and there are seat fillers. There are people that yeah. run in and sit in those seats. Yeah, yeah. So if Actually, you're writing um, a joke that has to land about Tom Cruise and he's not in his seat, then the camera has nothing to turn to and the joke is dead. Right. Well, I mean, most of the jokes happen right they're, they're either in the monologue, the opening monologue, which everyone is there, mm -hmm. or they're like for the intros to the presenters. Mm -hmm. And so they will let them know ahead of time, like, oh, you know, they're going to mention you at this juncture so that they are there. So do you think Chris Rock ad-libbed the G.I. Jane reference? 100%. Ooh. Yeah. Oh, that, that, that's that. So in that sense, that was really risky. I mean, was it risky if, I mean, celebrities are used to being teased and, you know, joked about it's the friggin' Oscars. Like, Chris Rock is going to make fun of you. Yeah. Like you should, you should get down on your hands and knees and thank the merciful Lord Jesus that you've got <laughs> one of the best comics in the entire world making jokes about you. Yeah. You know, that's my feeling. Which Queen Elizabeth must have realized on some level <laughs> with William Shakespeare. Yes. Better yes. to be written about by the best writer 
or have some passing reference made to some inside thing that the really clued in people are going to laugh at. Right. Exactly. Or, you know, the other thing about Queen Elizabeth, and I actually learned this working on Pushy Bitchy Frumpy Hori, is that um, they think that most of her life she was suffering from severe toxic poisoning from wearing lead-based makeup and cinnabar rouge on her and and uh, cinnabar on her lips because those are toxic metals. Uh-huh. And so they think that she was at least partially brain addled. And there's a lot of like scholarship that's like, what if she wasn't? What if she had been in full possession of her faculties? I mean, she was a pretty good queen, you know, poisoned. Mm-hmm. So what could she have accomplished had she been a hundred percent that that <laughs> is that is that's yeah. a hot take that right? is a that is a hot take a for piping sure. hot and take <laughs> listen we've had i've talked to dramaturgs and scholars and directors and actors uh mm-hmm. throughout these podcast series and you're the first person who has uh made reference to the possibly brain addled Queen Elizabeth, that she mm-hmm. may have been in an advanced state of dementia or some state or, of or, or just not doing good. Yeah. 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 So, and she, her teeth were completely black. Oof. Not as gangsta. No. <laughs> <laughs> Thank God they didn't have the paparazzi back then. I know, right? They didn't um, even have teeth bleaching kits then. So sad. So. <laughs> When you do a shake, when you do, okay, here's a question that it's, it's, it's almost rhetorical, right? But you go and you do a a Shakespeare play like this. Does it make you a better writer? One can make the argument that anytime you are filling your creative well with exceptional material, it enriches you as an artist, right? Then yes. I think it makes me in particular appreciate the punchiness of his turns of phrase, the words he invented, the jokes, the structure, the empathy. There are so many things to appreciate. And it's like a kaleidoscope. You know, you can adjust it a little bit and go, wow, that's beautiful. And you can adjust it another way and go, wow, that's beautiful. And, um, so it's it's a it's a really wonderful treat, you know. What is next for you in the world of writing, in the world of acting? Do you, do you have a dream project as a writer mm. that you're you're conjuring at the moment that you feel I comfortable? I really talking love about? to write for Armando Iannucci. Who is that? He uh, he created Veep, and he also created that British show called. Uh, the thick of it, or uh, uh, and in the loop. He's a you know a political satirist. He also did that movie, The Death of Stalin, which has many many incredible actors in it, including Rupert Friend and uh, oh god, I'm gonna blank. Anyway, it's a great great movie. Very very high speed, high octane, pitch black political farce. I would love to write for him. I think he's the most funny and the smartest and the best comic voice about our times right now, period. Um, 
I am kicking around some ideas for a new script of my own that I'm going to write because I need to just, I need to write another script. Um, those ideas are nascent. One title is Shore Leave. You don't have a, a role that you're, that you would love to play that you're like, God, before I, before the oh. end. Oof. Ah, uh, God, I used to be able to answer this question so easily because I was doing a lot more acting and I was thinking about it more. I feel like my answer has receded into the depths of my mind. <laughs> I would love to do a role that required a great deal of delicacy. Huh. Because a lot of the work that I get involves a certain sort of comic zestiness mm. or a lot of um, sort of aggro physicality, which I'm very good at and which I totally enjoy doing. But I feel like technically and emotionally, it would be a really fun challenge to do to play like a very fragile person uh, of, of delicacy. A fragile person of delicacy. Yeah. Like, I think a role that would be really hard for me, even though I'm way too old for it, is Laura in The Glass Menagerie. Oh, I could totally see like you doing it. Irina in The Three Sisters. Uh-huh. I would get cast as Olga, but I would like to play Irina. Or I would, no, no. You know what I would love to play? I never got to play this role. Nina in The Seagull. Oh, Yeah. I always got cast as friggin' Arcadena because I could pull it off and none of my other classmates could because I had the gravitas. But what part did I want to play? Nina. Mm. Mm -hmm. I got to play Constantine. Oh, the I best. Did. Yeah. Chekhov is really hard. Yeah, that's why I want to do it. <laughs> yeah. And again, nobody thinks of me as like a Chekhov actor. Well, I could totally see, you know, for what it's worth, I could totally see you doing any of those roles that you mentioned. Oh, you know, thank I you. Mean, uh, you know, uh, uh, I and I hope you do get to sit, do something like that. You know, if play on podcasts, if if next chapter podcast ever becomes next chapter media, and I'm running the fiction department, I'll tell you right now, Colleen, that I will <laughs> do everything I can to make sure that you get to play those roles. <laughs> All right. Well, you know, there's a little bakshish in there for you too. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> You've done some mentoring. Uh, I have. I, what, what, for whom, in what way? Well, um, I started doing mentoring sort of as a writing teacher mentor through the Writers Guild Initiative, which is part of the Writers Guild uh, Union you know, the, the TV and film writers union, there's like a philanthropic wing, a charitable wing where writers will do writing workshops with underserved populations. And it's so fun. I started doing it in like 2008 or 2009 through a friend of mine. And I absolutely love it. Like, um, at that time, there were a lot of workshops with Wounded Warriors Project, which is uh, a lot of veterans who have PTSD and traumatic brain injuries and physical injuries and people who are just sort of a 
little bit forgotten about by society when it's, you know, thank you for your service. It's sort of just not enough. Right. And also we did workshops with their caregivers who are an even more neglected segment of society who, you know, whose life narratives have been completely upended, whose husbands used to be my big, strong man and are now my broken husk, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and they deal with a tremendous amount of, of stress and worry and, and burden, frankly, and nobody thinks about them. We've also, uh, through that organization, I've also mentored writing workshops with like LGBTQ asylum seekers from other countries Mm. who are at like, you know, these houses in uh, Massachusetts or uh, like the Muslim Writers Collective, which are Muslim American writers, mostly young, uh, who kind of don't have a lot of opportunities in mainstream writing worlds and uh and and other groups uh prison groups all kinds of stuff i find it tremendously rewarding and through that i got recommended to teach uh at sundance institute so i teach at the sundance episodic lab which happens like twice a year where they have extraordinary young writers come in and i kind of do like creativity workshops with them mostly to just like unclench their sphincters because a lot of times they're kind of unknowns who are placed in this like very, very high pressure situation. And a lot of their work is based about like identity. So they're mm-hmm. in these kind of uh, conundrum where it's like, I need to harvest my identity for, you know, fun and profit. But then they also don't want to speak for or have their work be all about their identity. So it's just kind of about fucking their shit up. And telling them to embrace their devil and have fun and fuck everybody and just be playful, which is one of the hardest things to keep doing when you start becoming a professional writer. You know, it's like working in the ice cream store. After a while, that ice cream is a lot less delicious, right? Because you're just around it all the time. So you have to find a way to like re-love ice cream. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so those are my mentor thingies the for the best- most part the best mentoring advice ever given unclench the sphincter yes so the creativity can come out. I think that it really true. works it is, if you can do it it really works as a performer as a writer as uh as a human being yes yes words to live by unclench it unclench it <laughs> yep copyright and good things will happen colleen worthman Colleen, it has been a real pleasure talking with you. Uh, I I've loved every minute of it, Michael. This has been so fun. Hey, I, I I I and I appreciate your work so much in this series. It's really wonderful. You have an incredibly oh, engaging you. voice, and the character is so clear. And it's just great to 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 hear the sort of you know the parallels between these two worlds that you uh, encompass from classical theater to contemporary satire and comedy writing. And uh, uh, I, I just think it's, it's, it's a real treat to have you as a part of the series. And I'm really glad that you agreed to do it with us. Thank you so much. It was such a pleasure to work on and uh, you were such a fun presence in our ears. So encouraging <laughs> and praising, you know, what, 
That's the number one thing that all actors love, encouragement and praise. And you gave <laughs> a ton of it. And I'm very, well, very, and great I, notes too, but you know, really liberal with the encouragement and praise. So kudos. As one of the neediest, most insecure <laughs> actors ever to have uh, taken the craft seriously, you know, I, I definitely know how important it is to get approval. You've been listening to the Play On Podcast bonus content series. You can learn more about the Play On Podcasts at Next Chapter Podcasts website ncpodcasts.com that's n as in next c as in chapter podcasts with an s at the end.com where you can find other play on podcast series and interviews along with talk podcasts like how i got green lit the 500 with josh adam myers the 10 the tough juice podcast with karan butler and a whole lot more i'd like to thank jeremiah tittle the founder of Next Chapter Podcasts, and my producer, Peter Musto, our audio engineer, Adam Bernard, and our editor and sound designer, Justin Cortese. Be sure to subscribe to Next Chapter Podcasts for updates on all the latest content. And don't forget to rate and review our shows. I'm Michael Goodfriend, and I look forward to sharing more incredible works in the Play On Podcast series with you, along with lots of enlightening bonus content at Next Chapter Podcasts. Hey, Play On Podcast listeners. I want you to be a part of the cast. Become a supporting cast member with Play On Podcasts for just $5 a month. Get in-depth interviews featuring some of the most brilliant artists working today. I talk to actors, playwrights, directors, and producers from the worlds of theater and Hollywood, pulling back the curtain on why they got into their profession, why these stories are so relevant today, and providing context on the process of making these plays in the podcast format. You'll enjoy ad-free episodes of the Play On podcast series, and maybe even a gift or two. Head over to playonpodcasts.com click supporting cast and join the club today. We so love creating this content for you and we hope you'll support us so we can bring you inside this rejuvenated, reimagined Shakespearean world. Join the cast, supporting cast. Go to ncpodcasts.com. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Next Chapter Podcasts.